0: Hello, and welcome back to the Death and Grief Talk podcast. My name is Joelle Simone Maldonado. I'm also known as The Grave Woman, and today I have the honor of speaking with elder law and disability attorney, Shannon Pauley. Having end of life discussions and making plans for our estate can be an extremely overwhelming and taxing process, especially when we decide to use cookie cutter platforms that can be found online, As well as try to figure things out on our own. In today's discussion, Shannon takes the time to explain several key points and things that need to go into consideration when making estate plans, as well as breaking down the process for us from an attorney's perspective. Today's podcast is brought to you by Spiritual Funeral Planning 101. Are you ready to make real decisions about your life and how it will be celebrated before it's too late? End of life and funeral planning are truly some of the best gifts that you can give your loved ones. Properly organizing your estate, financial affairs, and final wishes is vitally important, but have you given any thought to what your non-tangible legacy will be? Spiritual Funeral Planning 101 is for those who are seeking to make end-of-life and funeral plans that truly reflect the essence of who you are as an individual. During our time together, we'll explore three of the most important parts of end of life and funeral planning, seven documents that you must have in place, five risks you take when you don't pre-plan, identifying your key players at the end of life, pre-planning versus pre-funding, life insurance versus funeral or burial plans, creating a living legacy, the five four three two one method for creating your, your eulogy, avoiding regret at the end of life creating a truly spiritual end of life or celebration or memorial, honoring traditions while expressing what you truly want, non-religious funeral and burial options, and money-saving moves that you need to make right now, along with so much more. If you're interested in learning more about the Spiritual Funeral Planning 101 course visit www.thegravewoman.com and search the menu for Spiritual Funeral Planning 101. Shannon, would you please introduce yourself and tell the listeners and those viewing us on YouTube about the amazing work that you do?
1: Oh, certainly. So as Joelle stated, my name is Shannon Pauley. I am the owner and an attorney at the Estate and Asset Protection Law Firm. We are a state asset protection and government benefit planning firm that is located in the state of Georgia the city of Decatur. And one of the things I believe that sets us apart from other firms is we focus on people finding the peace that one finds through planning. And that planning can be a multitude of things as I'm sure we're gonna discuss today, but our focus is peace through the preservation of both independence, care and comfort, no matter what life brings you.
0: That is absolutely amazing, Shannon. I love what you said about peace, because a lot of times when we think about end of life and someone passing away, peace is one of the last things that comes to our mind. So the fact that you're providing the opportunity for loved ones and survivors to have peace upon death is almost priceless. So a lot of times I'll get rebuttal when I talk about pre-planning for funeral and burial, and especially when I mention estate planning. People will be like, well, I don't have anything or I don't have any assets. I'm not rich. I don't even own my home. Why do I need a will? My family knows what I want to happen when I pass. Why do I need a will anyway? So that's a wonderful
1: question. It's one that I hear quite often, actually. And the biggest thing that they emphasize is the will is one of the three basic estate planning documents everyone over the age of 18 should have. It's so important that even Uncle Sam recognizes it for our military when they're in boot. Before they get out of boot, Uncle Sam makes sure that they have a basic will. Now, as you stated, people very often make the comment, well, my family knows what I want, so um, why do I need a will? Well, here's my comment. I'm not the same person I was at age 20 or age 30 or age 40 or even six months ago. (laughs) by not being the same person, my wishes, my intents, my place in life, things that I want to give people that are in my life and out, it's ever evolving. It's ever changing. And so, yes, your loved ones may know what you want when you spoke to them 20 years ago, or when you spoke to them six months ago, or when you spoke to them one week ago, but here's the thing. Relationships change, assets change, opinions change. And the only way you're gonna solidify your legacy and the focus that you want to have is through the drafting of that will. Now the comment that people have, well, I don't have any assets. I don't have X, I only have a house, et cetera. Here's my comment. You definitely want to have a say-so where these assets are going. And if you pass without a will, you will be dying in what's called intestacy. And then at that point, instead of you being able to honor the people that meant a lot in your life and those connections, now suddenly, who's gonna get your stuff is gonna be coldly decided by statutory law. And I am of the opinion that we have hand imprints on our heart of our loved ones that we want to recognize. And they're not always the stereotypical uh, Ward Cleaver relationships. That the statutory laws may recognize.
0: Now, can people challenge the wishes that are in someone's will?
1: Yes, they can. And that's very much a frustration. But if anything, that means all the more that you have got to make sure that one, you have a will, two, that it's properly drafted by someone that is a professional, not what I will call the equivalent of Mad Lib that you get from. Home Depot. I just talked with somebody two weeks ago. They got their will from Home Depot like 12 years ago. And literally it's fill in the blank. And the problem with the challenging is if you're not specific or if you leave things open, or if you don't intentionally declare people you're purposely excluding, well now all of a sudden it's up to judicial interpretation as to what you meant because you're not specific. Lastly, A confusion that a lot of people have is the thought that, well, if there's a challenge to the will, more than one will, well, that's fine. The last will is always the one that survives. That's the winner, right, Shannon? And my comments, no, because we could have it where there was a will that was drafted five years ago when I was competent, but then, you know, two weeks ago when I'm at the final stages of a stroke Um, In the final days of my life, my child takes me someplace and gets me to do an affirmative X on the document, not knowing, not having the capacity. And yes, now I've passed and both those wills are being presented. And at first glance, you see one that's five years ago and one that's two weeks ago. Your first thought is, well, of course, the most recent was my most recent choices. But if I didn't have capacity, this will doesn't apply It's that one five years ago. So there's a lot of reasons as to why wills may be challenged. And there's a lot of reasons why you want to have a professional in your corner to ensure that you are properly positioned to prevent an unnecessary and inappropriate challenge.
0: Wow, that's enlightening, to say the least. You mentioned a few minutes ago the three basic estate planning documents that everyone over 18 should have. And as we just discussed, a will is one of them. What are the other two?
1: So the other two are focusing where the will is focusing on after you pass. The other two basic state planning documents are focusing on what happens if something occurs to you when you live. And these two documents are known as a financial power of attorney and a healthcare power of attorney with medical directive. I'll start with talking about the financial power of attorney. So the beauty of a financial power of attorney is when you're going to declare out an agent who is going to Act on your behalf for handling your financial and contractual affairs. This is more than just access to your bank account, because I'll have people go, I don't need a financial private attorney. I'll just put them as a joint on my bank account. Well, that's fine. That's handling that isolated part of the um, financial. But there's more. There's the ability to declare beneficiaries. If I'm now suddenly incompetent, I have an agent. <laughs> excuse me, and my child, unfortunately, special needs now where they weren't previously, I need to be able to make sure that my agent acting on my best interest to preserve my estate for my special needs child can change beneficiaries so they don't receive directly and lose their benefits. This is going to also give the agent the authority under that financial power of attorney, finally enter into contracts, which is this for their protection. So if your child is having to take you into a rehab facility because you've lost capacity, you've had a stroke, et cetera, they have to complete all of that application work. Trust me, you want them to be signing it in what's called their fiduciary capacity as Shannon Polly, comma agent in fact, instead of Shannon Polly. Because if you sign just Shannon Polly, you're exposing yourself to individual liability. But in addition, the financial power of attorney gives your agent the authority to get you out of a contract. So if you're now sitting in a situation where the $250 cable bill, that $250 going towards cable, so the difference between a have or a have not for a prescription, you want to make sure that your agent can actually cancel your cable bill. And my comment is this to all of the listeners. I can guarantee you most, if not all of us have had cable at some point in our life. And if you've ever tried to cancel cable with your name on the account, it's difficult enough. Now, if you're trying to cancel and your name's not on the account and you have no legal authority, they'll give you the empathy statements. They'll say, oh, I'm so very sorry to hear about the need for that prescription, but um, you're not canceling. And they're going to take out that 250 at the first of the month, and here is your loved one not having the money for that copay. So that's the importance of the financial power of attorney. Now, similar is the healthcare power of attorney. But instead of focusing on your assets and your stuff, like the financial does, your healthcare power of attorney is focusing on you as the person. This is the document that's gonna allow your agent, your loved one, to have access to your medical records, to discuss medical treatment plans with your doctors, and to make healthcare decisions on your behalf. Because we have this wonderful thing called HIPAA. And HIPAA is going to shut out your loved ones unless they have a legal entitlement to know what's going on in your healthcare plans. Now, a misconception a lot of people have is, well, that's my husband. Of course, they're going to talk to my husband. Well, here's my comment, ladies out there. Last time you went for your annual, I can guarantee that you had to sign HIPAA releases. HIPAA releases that were even stating, who can they leave a message with your significant other? And if so, what can they say? Because HIPAA is... Therefore, the privacy of you and your healthcare needs and your healthcare procedures. And so, therefore, I'm sure you don't want to shut out your loved one if you were suddenly having to go into the ER. So, therefore, make sure you have this healthcare power of attorney, declaring your agent so they are not shut out under HIPAA rules. Secondly, I made the comment that this would be a healthcare power of attorney with medical directive. A medical directive is the kindest gift you can ever give a loved one. Uh, The healthcare directive basically is focusing on how you want your end of life treatment plan to be. So for example, if you're in the final stages of a terminal illness, such as stage four cancer, and they say your body's too weak for chemo anymore, I'm sorry, it's gonna be a matter of days or weeks before you pass. Or if you're like the Shrivo case from the nineties, where you're in a permanent vegetative state, not responding to external stimuli. Well, what you're stating, if you're meeting situations like that, or even the final stages of aggressive disorder like Parkinson's, where you can't swallow anymore. If you're reaching those final stages, the medical directive is where you're declaring out to your agent, how you want your treatment plan to be. Do you want the full bells and whistles? Do you want to that, if they can keep you alive, keep you alive? Or do you wanna be able to die naturally free of pain? Or do you want a hybrid in there? Do you not want anything to be hooked up to you unless it's gonna cure you? Um, Unless because of COVID and all we've seen about COVID, last thing you want is your last days to be struggling for breath. You wanna be put on a ventilator. So you're gonna declare out your end of life treatment plans so that when that doctor walks up to your loved one and says, okay, I'm sorry to tell you this, but Shannon, she's in a permanent vegetative state. They she has a 98% chance of not coming out of this. And I need to know what we need to do next. I'll come back in 15, 30 minutes. And if you didn't have this healthcare power of attorney, the play on the shoulders is just going to be ridiculous. They're going to be thinking in on one side, oh, Shannon is a fighter. If there's a 2% chance, oh yeah, she's going to make it. So I I can't I got to keep her hooked up, you know. But then you have this little whisper coming in the ear on the other side going, whoa, 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 Shannon. Does not responding to external stimuli she's in a permanent vegetative state she can't communicate she could be silently screaming out in pain and agony and if i leave her on this machine i'm no longer her protector i'm her tormentor so the medical directive you're stating how you want to your final days to be for your treatment and it's not going to be easier to say the words but they're going to be honoring you so and a full summary of what I apologize ended up being an over five-minute explanation, but I'm so passionate about these documents. The other two documents are the financial power of attorney and the healthcare power of attorney with medical directive.
0: I'm so glad that you took the time to break that down because a lot of times people are overwhelmed by all of these new terms that they haven't heard before, especially when having conversations about death and dying, because there's such for a lot of people, uncom- um, uncomfortable conversations. So please don't apologize. I, I guarantee I can speak for the listeners and those viewing that we appreciate your thorough explanation. So Shannon, how often it should we update these documents? Because for example, I did my first um, medical directive when I was 21 years old, I'm now 35. I can't even tell you where that document is right now. <laughs> So, how often should we update each of those documents? So, for the
1: purposes of true updating, you're going to want to update your documents, for example, your powers of attorney, if there's been any statutory language changes, because you want to make sure that your powers of attorney are in the most current statutory language. Now, do you realize when I start talking about statutory language, what I don't want you to think is that, okay, well then fine, I'll just pull the statute, I'll be great, I'll be just as good as that document that Shannon's going, and her firm's going to charge X amount for. Do you realize that when you're dealing with health excuse me, um, legal professionals like myself, we are an elder law firm, which makes us separate and unique whenever we're doing strategic planning. So the statutory language to, as of today is about five pages for a financial power of attorney if it's standardly typed. Our powers of return are 25 pages because we add addendums to it to make it more specific and more exact. But the ability to, or the need to update, is going to be one if your agents have changed or your relationships. So you need to update those agents because you want to always make sure the persons your agents are persons that you trust to handle your health and your financial. And realize that agent doesn't have to be the same person, they can be different people. Number two is if there's a statutory change. And then a third one that I emphasize is if you've had any significant life changes, for example, if you suddenly have a child, or if you get divorced, or if you get married, or if now you're a business owner. If you have these significant life events, you want to have your documents not necessarily redrafted but reviewed by your estate planning and asset protection professional, because they wanna make sure that you are allowing your plan to grow with you. In addition, even if you haven't had these significant life events and you haven't heard of any statutory language changes, it's best practice to always have your documents reviewed every three to five years by an attorney, because life happens fast to the outside viewer, but really slow when it's happening to you. And you may not think it's been a significant event until you start talking about, well, you know, when my sister died three years ago, I inherited, you know, her entire estate. And I mean, that did cause marital friction that I got divorced from my husband and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I still think that these documents may be okay. It's been five years. So, That's the other benefit is you're going to be able to narrate to another and they're going to also be able to review. So in summary, if there's been a statutory change to your knowledge, you want to update your documents or at least have them reviewed. If you've had a significant life event change for the positive or the negative, you want your documents reviewed and then standardly have them reviewed every three to five years, even if you cannot pinpoint a statutory change or significant life event.
0: That's awesome. And you mentioned Um, inheritance a second, a second ago, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about probate. I know probate court is something that we hear a lot, or we hear about it when celebrities pass away and their estate is in probate, but a lot of us really don't understand what that means. Can you tell us exactly what probate court is or probate is and why it is that we want to avoid probate?
1: Certainly. So probate is a legal process where after a person passes, any assets in their individual name, they have to be transferred to the declared beneficiary, either through the will or through the laws of intestacy. Well, as the deceased is now dead, they can't sign over, for example, the title of the car to the declared beneficiary, or the <laughs> excuse me, <coughs> or the house to the beneficiary. So the probate court's purpose is to ensure that not only are the creditors of your state properly recognized and repaid for any debts owed during your lifetime, but also to assist in the transfer of the deeds that from your name to the names of your beneficiaries. Now, probate is not a difficult process. What I mean by that is it's forms. And you've got to have an understanding how to complete these forms, timely file the forms, because it's all forms waiting period, forms, waiting period. But the true expense in my view, is not even the filing fees that you're going to pay. Or even if you're hiring an attorney, it's not even gonna be that expense. You know, cause it's still going to be, I use in quotes of a nominal amount for the filing fees and accession. Filing fees like less than $700. The real expense is time. Right now due to COVID delays, you're looking at what could be up to 36 months for the life of, excuse my language, but cradle to grave of a probate matter. Now, it's always gonna be a minimum of six months, always, but COVID delays in certain counties in Metro Atlanta are now up to 36 months. Now, for me, that's a significant burden you're gonna put on your loved one of several years, but also when you're having to go through the probate process and how they're gonna have to take care of your assets promptly, you're unfortunately delaying the ability of your loved one to mourn when they're having to go through probate, because we're we'll be stressing them out the whole probate process. The other thing that I personally do not like about probate is that everything is public record. And what I mean by that is the moment that I sit down and I have the will, and the will is now gonna be presented to the clerk. As soon as the clerk takes the will, and to admit it into probate, you can have nosy Nancy standing in the line behind me and nosy Nancy can go, hey, that's now public record. And I'm nosy Nancy, I'd like to see that place. And for all sake and argument, it's now public record. She has a right to see it. And I always like to give examples that sometimes are in the extreme, but they're definitely real. And I ask this question to all of the listeners out there. And that is, have you guys ever heard of the singer Whitney Houston? So Whitney Houston, when she passed away, she only had a will. And in that will, she left everything to her daughter, Bobby Christina. And at first glance, you're going, great job, Whitney. You're definitely providing for your daughter. I think this is wonderful. You're wrapping her in your arms of love. This is great. But here's my comment to you. I challenge that. I don't think that she wrapped her daughter in the arms of love. Instead, she has this young lady that I think was barely 18 at the time of her mother's passing. Instead of protecting her like every parent wants to do, she put a target on her daughter's back. Because remember, I told you everything is public record in probate. So when she passed away and her will was admitted to probate, within 15 minutes of that will being admitted to probate. It was all over TMZ, Entertainment Tonight, the morning talk shows, uh, the morning news, CNN. It was all over the place. And at first glance, you go, well, this is a violation of privacy. Somebody should get in trouble. But you remember Nosy Nancy? For all we know, that could have been Nosy Nancy that was standing behind there, got a copy of that will and gave it out to TMZ and et cetera. So as I said, copies of the will, everybody could see. And when looking at it, they saw that Bobby Christina was the beneficiary. Not only seeing that she was the primary beneficiary, but also they were seeing what she was gonna inherit. And if you remember, I said that the public, or excuse me, the probate process is public record. So as the process progressed, everybody knew how much she was receiving, where she was receiving it from, and when she got it. So now, what do you think that did that brought all the predators out, circling around her like vultures? And if you ever followed the story to its unfortunate demise at the end of the story is her daughter actually committed suicide in an eerily similar bathtub presentation, just like what it unfortunately happened with Whitney. So that's an extreme example of the dangers of lack of privacy, but it's a real example.
0: Wow. And of course, I think you had to be living under a rock not to remember those headlines. So speaking (laughs) of beneficiaries, how much control can I have on my beneficiaries' access to my access through estate planning documents?
1: So this is one of the things I love to talk to clients about. And this is where we start talking about what could be, for example, in a will or a trust, you can have what are called Subtrust in a will would be called a testamentary subtrust. So we talked about wills earlier, so stay in the realm of wills right now. And what these subtrusts are going to be able to do is you are going to be able to address concerns you have over your beneficiaries and the billability that they have to access their money. So, for example, uh, Joelle, let's say that you have a son and your son's name is Gary the gambler. Okay. Gary, <laughs> so Gary, the gambler, if he has two nickels to rub together, he's running down to the track. He's embedded on the ponies. So if you were to pass away and you left your estate to your son, Gary, the gambler, and he received it outright, what do you think he's going to do as soon as he gets that inheritance?
0: Gary's going straight to the track and mama's going to be hunting him down all the way from the other side.
1: Exactly, exactly. And I'm sure that would never be your intent. You'd wanna be able to protect Gary from himself and his own vices. So what you could do is you could set up a testamentary subtrust where you're basically stating that Gary's interest goes into a trust that would be managed or an assigned trustee, either himself or a third party. It was just a third party with Gary the Gambler. And you're gonna declare, is he gonna get an X amount each month like an allowance Or is uh, the trustee gonna have discretion how much to pay out? Or is he only going to get so much on each calendar event, quarterly, annually, or et cetera? That's just so that he's still gonna have access to the funds, but you are basically controlling the faucet. Now, another example of when you might wanna be able to have some control over what's going to one of your beneficiaries. Now, let's say you have a daughter because you gotta have a boy and a girl, and your daughter's name is lovesick Lucy. Oh God. (laughs) So lovesick Lucy, she's married to someone that the entire family knows is cheating on her. And everyone knows it, but guess what? Lucy is lovesick for her spouse. She is blindly in love and nothing you could say could ever make it to where you would think differently. So now in this scenario, the risk that you have is if you passed away, the inheritance was given to lovesick Lucy, And lovesick Lucy places it into the joint account because they're married. They only have one account. They share everything. They're a couple. They're a team. Well, if her spouse vows for divorce one month, six months, one year later, the risk you have now is that that inheritance that you intended to go to your daughter lovesick Lucy is now at risk of being considered to be part of the marital estate, being divided 50-50 between her and her spouse. So there's just a couple examples, because what you could do at that point is you could say, I want her interest system going outright to her With to eliminate that risk. Hers goes into a trust. And once again, just like with Gary the Gambler, you have control over the faucet as to how they will be receiving the funds, whether it be discretionary or et cetera. Now, in that case, it could be a value to have Lovesick Lucy as your own trustee or you wanna have it to be another person. Regardless, that's the beauty of the control you can have with your beneficiaries. You can control the faucet to protect themselves from predators, creditors. Um, Similar, like what we've been talking about, if you have now another daughter, credit card Cindy. Credit card Cindy, if she has any balance on her credit card, she's going to sit down and she's gonna charge it up to the max. So now Cindy, she. What's that saying? I've got champagne taste on a Kool-Aid budget. Well, she can't pay. So now she's got all these judgments against her. Well, the last thing you would ever want is for credit card Cindy to now receive a direct inheritance from you. She gets all excited because she thinks she's going to run a great shopping spree and she deposits it into her bank account. And then one of her creditors, judgment creditors, files a bank card and they end up seizing that full amount in satisfaction of their judgment. That's the last thing that you would want to happen. Once again, similar like what we talked about with Lovesick Lucy, similar to what we talked about with Gary the Gambler, you can put it into a trust to try to protect that inheritance for your children, from themselves, from predators and creditors.
0: You're muted right now. Are trusts only for people with lots of money? Oh, absolutely not.
1: That is, that's a really big misconception, and I really um, blame that on... Um, Oh, shoot. I can't remember the gentleman's name, but Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Oh, Robin Leach, I think his name was. I blame it on him because I think that because of him and the Rockefellers and the Carnegies and et cetera, those are the big ones you keep hearing about trust. And you hear about trust in that aspect of being like a a legacy will transfer, but realize that trust serve a multitude of purposes. Yes, there is an asset preservation aspect of certain types of trust, but there's other trusts you can utilize that serve different purposes. If you remember a few moments ago, we were talking about probate, and I was making the comment that you don't want to have to go through probate. You don't want to have to deal with that up to 36 months. You don't want everything to be private, or excuse me, you want your stuff to be private. You don't want everything to be public. Well, you can create what's called a revocable living trust during your lifetime. And you can transfer all of your assets your individually into your revocable living trust, which think of it as an open cookie jar with no new lid, that you'll be the trustee, you're going to be the beneficiary of both principal and income. So during your life, you can have access to those funds the same as you do in your current bank account, for example. But the beauty of it is when you pass away and that trust now gets a lid on the cookie jar because nobody else can touch it because only you can touch those funds. When the probate court goes, okay, show me everything that's in your individual name at time of death, now there's nothing in your individual name, it's all in the name of the trust, you've avoided probate because now that trust is going to be able to immediately distribute out to your heirs instead of having to go through the probate process and that up to 36-month delay. But the other benefit of trust, kind of like that example I was just giving with the revocable living trust, is it also assists in the ease of transition in the event that the person becomes disabled. So for example, do you remember when we were going back, we were talking about the powers of attorney. Notice how everything is circular. We all keep referring back because you've got a foundation and you've got stuff you could build upon it to make that foundation even stronger or an even better result. So the power of attorney is giving you the right to have access and control over these individual relationships and the whole thing is you don't need a power of attorney till you need it so when you need it now suddenly you're creating those relationships well the thing is this when you're creating it it's at a heightened state something has happened as to why now you've got to get access to mom's bank account you've got to get access to mom's um, investments well in that heightened state and this is going to be your first time creating that relationship You could end up having to go through a path of a lot of hoop jumping. You're already heightened um, emotionally with what's going on. And now this is going to cause unnecessary friction and delay. Well, if we went down the trust methodology, where you put everything into the name of the trust, being your bank accounts, your investments, your house, et cetera. Well, now think of the trustee as sitting in the seat of a gigantic robot and that robot is your trust and is your robot that's calling to transfer funds or it's your robot that's sitting down and interacting with people. Well, if something happened to you as the trustee and you need your backup trustee to step in for you, instead of them having to reestablish relationships like with a power of attorney, they're just going to sit in that control seat that you've already created with that robot, already with established relationships with these vendors and creditors so that we don't have to go through that hoop jumping again because the relationship's already been created. And that's an example of the ease of transition that you can also get through a trust if a person becomes incompetent. And my comment with trust, it gets even more creative from there. We can go down the areas of philanthropy. We can go down the area of providing for your pets. I myself, I do not have children with two legs. My children have four and I have three apps. Loving it. I say I have three absolutely beautiful dogs, two Welsh Terriers and one Airedale and they're my kids. And they are part of my estate plan because the last thing I ever want is for me to pass and me have not already made a proactive plan for my pets. So realize that these trusts, they serve a multitude of purposes and it's not just for that asset transfer like the carnegies that a lot of us immediately think of or those lifestyles of the rich and famous are the only ones that need trust if you own anything there's a strong chance that you would benefit from a trust
0: that is excellent information and after hearing the hypothetical scenarios around my irresponsible children in this story Can I disinherit my spouse or my children from my will or estate?
1: Yes, you can. Um, You'll want to do it where you are explicitly detailing it within your will. So for example, let's say that based upon all of the attempts that you attempted to interact with, reach out with and love and try to support Gary the gambler, but he's not only Gary the gambler, his addictive personality has shown in other substances too. So you've separated your relationship with him. And now in your will, you do not want him to take. Well, you can, within your will, explicitly recognize Gary the Gambler as your child and then explicitly state that you do not want him to take and you want him to be deemed to have predeceased you and that none of his heirs will take either. You can sit down and state that. Now, one of the comments I will make, however, is that if you try to disinherit a spouse in a will, and that will has to go through probate, there is a possibility of an alternative avenue that that spouse could utilize to still get access to a portion of your estate. Um, in several states, they have something called spousal share. But here in Georgia, it's not spousal share. They have something that's called petitions for a year's support. And this is all going back to Um, When we used to have people that would rent spaces for crops, and the whole idea was if you and your spouse ended up using all your money to plant a crop, and now they passed right after planting, you want to make sure that the person can still literally receive from that which they have planted. And that's kind of the foundational thought behind a year support. It's dated, I think it's only us, and I think Mississippi is the only other state that has the year support. But do realize that is an avenue that your spouse could potentially go down even if you try to disinherit them. So while yes, you can disinherit, For certain relationships, such as spouses, there are other avenues that could be pursued through the probate courts if your state has to go through probate. And that's why you want to have a trust, because then you have to go through probate.
0: That is really great information. And all of this seems like it's really a very strategic process. So shifting gears a little bit, what are some long-term care strategies to help limit the financial expenses for increasing levels of care as we age?
1: So long-term care is a reality that my grandparents really didn't have because my grandparents' generation, you retired at 60 or did at 65. All that money that you got as your pension is definitely going to provide for you no matter what happens. But people aren't dying at 65 now. People are living well into the mid-80s, 90s centurions. And so therefore, we're living longer after we conclude our wage earning. So for that reason, you've got to have a proactive long-term care strategy. Now there's different ways that people do it. Some people will sit down and they'll look at it as, well, that's the whole purpose of my 401k and my brokerage accounts. I'm doing this so that those funds can be utilized. Well, That's one strategy. Now, another strategy could be to utilize a portion of those funds and purchase what's called a long-term care insurance policy. And this is a policy that will cover a particular amount for a specific period or a specific max amount to cover your care. Very often they are capping out at between 150 to $300 a day for up to you know, three to five years. Uh, which is great. And sometimes you go, oh, wow, $150 a day, that's wonderful. They're gonna be swimming in the money, but that's not true, unfortunately. So let's talk about the cost of long-term care in Metro Atlanta. In Metro Atlanta, you're looking at between 5,000 to $15,000 a month. That's going to have a significant dent on anybody's estate, whether it's astronomical or it's nominal, it's going to be seen. And so my comment always is, when it comes to long-term care, do not bargain shop for long-term care. You need to make sure that the place that your loved one or yourself is placed in is actually meeting the expectations and your needs. Now, myself, I would not place my dog even in a $5,000 facility. It has nothing to do with the people that work there. They have the same passion, the same love, the same dedication to the patients. The difference is ratios, and the ratios are out of whack. So, through long term care strategy, you're going to be able to make sure that if you have to be placed, you're going to be placed in a facility that's going to have those right ratios. Now, another strategy that we do quite often is we can do what's called a proactive governmental benefit trust strategy. And this is where, let's say, for example, Joelle, that unfortunately you just got diagnosed with Parkinson's. Parkinson's is a progressive disorder that it varies as to when your body actually starts failing you. Um, it could be two years. It could be seven years. It could be any combination they're in, but usually Parkinson's is hereditary and you've seen it in other family members to know time periods because it's usually pretty consistent very often in families. Now, if you got diagnosed with Parkinson's today and it was early, what we could do is a proactive government asset protection trust strategy, where we're gonna take your assets of value, such as your home, your brokerage accounts, et cetera, to put them into an asset protection trust where you're gonna be able to receive the income or the benefit of living in over five years. So that if after five years, now suddenly you need skilled nursing, well, now we've got you perfectly set up ideally for prompt qualification for Medicaid eligibility so that then you will be able to qualify for Medicaid with little to no additional planning, be able to get the benefit of that program that you yourself have paid into over your entire professional life with the monies that you have put aside in your trust could potentially be utilized to supplement your quality of care and quality of life. So there's different strategies for long-term care, but I will emphasize that long-term care is expensive. So you want a strategy of some sort because throwing spaghetti against the wall is not the strategy
0: you want when it comes to long-term care. What wonderful information. I want to talk a little bit about veterans. Are there any special programs available to help with increasing medical expenses for veterans?
1: Yes, there are actually. So the VA has recognition of different categories of veterans. And I myself, I am the daughter of a Navy veteran and I'm the wife of a Navy veteran. The Navy and the Marines, we go back six generations in my family. So we're very proud of the dedication to service that my family has done. And the VA, one of the programs they have is called VA Pension Aid and Attendance. Well, this is a wonderful, plan of opportunity that is available for anybody that is specifically defined out under VA standards as a wartime veteran. And if you are a wartime veteran, or the surviving spouse of a wartime veteran, as long as they served a minimum of 90 days outside of boot camp with one day during a recognized wartime period and honorably discharged, they have an opportunity to take under this plan. And what it will do is, if you meet the medical need and you meet the financial need, then uh, the VA will give a stipend to cover a portion of your medical needs each month. This is a wonderful program. And I emphasize this is a program that is not only for the veteran. And once again, it's a veteran. You don't have to retire from the military, you just have to have been honorably discharged. But the other beauty of it is, it applies to the spouse. Now, another program through the VA that they have. Is they have a referral program called Community Care Network. And I have a couple of clients that actually are receiving benefits through the Community Care Network, where they received a referral from their healthcare provider stating that, you know, John Doe needs 18 hours of nursing care in their home. And the beauty is that prescription, they get 18 hours of at home professional uh, companion or nursing care for no expense to themselves. And if you've ever tried to talk to these organizations that do at home nursing care for a individual that's more of a companion level, not even a skilled nursing individual, you're looking at between 25 to $30 an hour and it just keeps going up from there. So yes, there are plans and there are opportunities through the VA. And I encourage anyone that is active duty military, reach out to your VA ombudsman at your local VA. Confirm what you qualify for. If you're not 100% positive, what you qualify for. Make sure you have your DD-214 handy with you, either for you to confirm or for your loved ones. If you reach that medical need, that they'll be able to have at least that step one with your DD-214 and start reaching out to professionals, especially like myself at my firm, that can ensure that they are promptly qualified for and receiving under any veteran benefit plan they're entitled to.
0: I'm so glad you mentioned reaching out to a professional. Because we live in the age of DIY, where everybody feels like they can just get on the internet and do everything themselves from funeral planning to embalming a body to anything. So I know, because I know my audience, a lot of people are thinking, why do I need to reach out to an attorney for this when websites like LegalZoom or Zodoc or websites like that exist? What are the benefits of actually working with someone like you? Here's my comment. I've never met two
1: people that are identical in fact patterns, experiences, and assets. We are not a vanilla society. We are not all a cookie cutter mold of each other. If we are not all a cookie cutter mold of each other, then how can we ever properly support ourselves, our legacy and our loved ones through a cookie cutter document? I truly do feel it's no different than doing a Mad Lib. I remember doing Mad Libs when I was younger. Give me an adjective, give me a noun, give me a verb. And now it's some type of a funny story. Well, guess what? If you're utilizing things like LegalZoom, chances are that funny story may end up being your legacy. Now, through the utilization of a professional, this person is actually going to bring in their expertise, their knowledge, their ability to individually craft what you want. Remember where we were talking about Gary the Gambler, lovesick Lucy, credit card Cindy? Well, if you remember, I said that you can set this up however you want for them. Well, through a a proper professional that does estate planning, elder caring, et cetera, they're gonna be able to walk you through your options, the benefit, the ripples, because every action has a ripple. And some of these ripples are bigger and some of them are smaller or some small ones may activate an now bigger ripple. You need to have someone that understands because I very often make the comment of, this is no different than Googling toothache. And when you Google toothache, you're going to see causes of toothache. It's gonna to say, oh, change your toothpaste. Oh, that's easy. Or it's gonna say root canal. Well, guess what? Until you get that professional involved, you're shooting in the dark. Is it toothpaste or is it root canal? Because Both of them are completely different in monetary investment in ripple effects and in the strike that is going to cause you if you don't properly and promptly get it addressed.
0: Thank you so much for that. Um, I don't have any more questions for you, but I want to make sure that my viewers know how to, viewers and listeners, know how to get in contact with you. So could you please just let us all know where to find you online and about any special offers that you have for new clients.
1: Certainly. So our website is www.elderlawgeorgia, spelled Georgia completely out.com. And what you'll notice there, we're going into more detail about the different services that we're focusing on. Now, one of the things that I do emphasize is I am very big on education. And On a weekly basis, I do have a Knowledge Thirst Thursday webinar series that I do, and I encourage you to be an educated consumer and to please register off of our website or through our Facebook, which once again, we're the estate and asset protection law firm. And register for one of our seminars, attend a seminar. And the beauty of attending a seminar is not only are you getting that knowledge, but at the conclusion, you're going to have a wonderful offer to get a discount time or discounted rate for meeting with one of the attorneys, whether it be myself or one of my associates. And I'm really looking forward to not only further communications and connection with you, Joelle, but also your audience. Because at the end of the day, I lead with a servant's heart. And I'm here to serve, and that service is however it can best serve you, Whether, even if it's not something I can do, do you realize I will always allow you to leave our situation in a better place with better knowledge, even if it's me referring you to someone else.
0: Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today, Shannon. I have had the honor of presenting with you on two webinars, and I have to say for an hour, of time the information that Shannon and her guests provide i mean you would pay a consultant fee of hundreds of dollars to receive the information and the good thing about it is that you get the replay so you can listen again and again and again i'm so grateful for your time i'm so grateful for the conversation that we've had and for your heart for service for helping people have one of the more difficult discussions that we have in our society thank you so much for joining me and We'll talk to you guys next time. Live life, love hard. Talk to you next time.
1: Bye-bye.